Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. This week we have our song machine discussion because I have finally finished the book and I apologize to anyone who was looking forward to this episode two weeks ago, but you're getting it now. And we do have a new book to announce, which it's a very short book. So we're thinking of just doing this for our next regular episode because it's literally, what, Megan, less than 150 pages easily? Probably. I mean, it is a 33 and a third. So it's one of those that you can sit down and read in like an hour type books. Yes, basically. But real quick, we just want to mention that the VMAs happened. And while it's probably too late to go into the in-depth discussion of how many people did or did not sing, we just want to mention Beyonce was great. Megan, why don't you say a few words? She's honestly the only thing that mattered about that show. No one expected her to perform, and it was only during the pre-show that people started saying, yeah, I'm looking forward to Beyonce. And that's basically why I watched. Yeah. For her 15-minute lemonade preview to the world, and it was wonderful and beautiful and nothing hurt. <laughs> and I would say the other highlight for me was the four gymnasts presenting, because one walked right in front of Simone Biles, and it's like she disappeared. You couldn't see her on the screen anymore because she's so small. <laughs> and I just found that entertaining, and they were great, and it's a bummer. Gabby couldn't be there. But can we talk about their faces when they got to meet Beyonce? That was honestly the cutest thing ever. <laughs> and I think it was Lori who was just the most excited. Yeah. I love it when people are adorable. I mean, can, can you imagine meeting Beyonce on stage at a award show? I would be that person just looking like Patrick, that Patrick Star meme. I don't know if you've ever seen it, <laughs> but it's the one where his eyes are all big and his mouth is just open. And yeah. Basically, that would be me. I know what meme you're talking about. I've also watched enough SpongeBob to just understand anyway. <laughs> Good. Maybe we should put in a picture for our listeners in the show notes just <laughs> yes. in case, because there are some people in this world who have not watched SpongeBob or don't know meme culture. Terrible life decision to not watch SpongeBob, by the way, everyone. So get on that if you have not done that. But anyway, we're going to jump into our discussion of the song machine. First, why don't we just go ahead and start with whether or not we like the book. I know, Megan, when we were texting back and forth and discussing this, I mentioned that I gave it a four out of five. And the main reason it didn't get that fifth star for me was because of some of the Kesha discussion that happened in the book. And we covered this, obviously, a lot of episodes ago on the podcast with our free Kesha episode and follow up on following episodes. But to me, the topic of this book didn't require the allegations against Dr. Luke being brought up. And to me, it kind of just took me out of the book for a bit because I was like, what does any of this have to do with the song machine and making hit songs? Because I felt like, you know, with the Kelly Clarkson portion of the book, they did a good a good job there of saying, you know, she didn't like the way Dr. Luke treated her, basically, and she didn't say, you know, he did anything wrong or whatever. She just didn't like his style of writing and producing music, and that kind of created a tension there. I think they also talked about her problems with, um, oh my gosh, what's his face? The guy at the record label. Why can't I think of his name? Oh my gosh. Clive Davis? Yes, Clive Davis. And how she just wasn't happy with his style of getting her to be a pop singer. He wasn't exactly right. fond of the way she wanted to do things. And going back to what you said about the whole Kesha discussion and even reeling in Kelly here, the song machine, it's people who are making or breaking pop song or pop artists. And it's the manufactured part. It just as easily as they can be manufactured, they can be destroyed and forgotten by right. the masses and I think that's kind of why it was in there I'm not entirely sure yeah I just felt like it was odd how much he focused simply on that aspect of the relationship instead of necessarily the music because I felt like there were a lot of Kesha songs that could have been mentioned but weren't especially mm -hmm. with you know how big I recall her album being at the time and obviously her output has dwindled since then because of everything that 
that's happened, but I just thought the way he focused on it didn't necessarily mesh with the rest of the book because I felt like he could have been like, so these things happened and, you know, therefore we haven't gotten much at all from Kesha the last few years. And really, I know you mentioned that a good chunk of this book was probably already written and everything, but like you mentioned, it's about the songs and how the songs are made or broken, essentially. So it just felt like an odd focus, considering he didn't really do that kind of focus with anyone else on a personal level, necessarily. It was all music-based or business-based, especially like you mentioned with Kelly and Clive Davis not seeing eye to eye on how things should be done. Exactly. And I am actually going to mention this one thing, which kind of has relevancy to the book and kind of has relevancy to our free Kesha discussion, that it is actually important to mention this. Uh, a few weeks ago, probably about a week and a half ago, it word came out that the New York judge who ruled in April that she couldn't record outside of her contract is actually married to an attorney who was a partner at a law firm that has Sony as a client. <laughs> so with that said there's there's a very high chance that her case could get hurt again and we could be discussing Kesha again and it will be interesting to see what happens and what comes out of that case if anything but that's like a huge conflict of interest right there yeah and it may it really makes you wonder yeah but if we go back what were you gonna say well like I mentioned it's like this instance kind of just took me out of the book and it's not that I don't want someone to necessarily write about this and talk about this it's just you get so far into the book and then you get this towards the end and you're just like uh okay now what do I do with this sort of thing right but going back to the whole book thing you said you gave it a four out of five and I would pretty much give it a four out of five as well yeah I did enjoy it it was a very good read even though I did have to renew it once from my library. <laughs> sorry, that's I'm my fault. I'm <laughs> sorry, Rappahannock Regional Library System for keeping it out for so long, but you know, things happen. However, I learned way more about the uh, folks of Sweden than I ever wanted to know. <laughs> it, it was really interesting. It, I liked how the book actually built upon that, as Sweden is technically a leading producer of pop songs, and pop producers right that's that's very important to note because well this year eurovision was held in sweden and if you don't know what eurovision is you should probably google it because it is the most ridiculous thing i have ever watched ever basically countries of europe and this year australia which is not the european union weird anyway they all come together and they put out singers and it's kind of like an american idol but with people from the countries right and then there's this weird voting process and sometimes the performances are so bizarre that you mm -hmm. just kind of sit there and go what did i just watch <laughs> i mean i honestly can't imagine eurovision happening in america because lord knows that would be an awful disaster um but it is important to note that sweden this year actually had a montage in Eurovision talking about all of the great artists that came out of Sweden. Right. And in the book, in chapter three, one of the earliest mentions is, well, Sweden. Chapter three is about Sweden. Ace of Bass came from Sweden. Most of the pop producers like Max Martin, Dr. Well, yeah, Dr. Luke, I think, was also Swedish or has some ties to Sweden. Max Martin, all of the huge pop producers of the 90s, Sweden. And what I really liked was that in chapter four of the book, they talk about ABBA and right. how they won Eurovision. ABBA got their start on Eurovision. Everything just goes back to Sweden, which is pretty <laughs> cool, I do have to say. And it did actually give me some history behind a lot of the pop artists that I listened to as a kid. I did not know that the Backstreet Boys basically weren't popular in America until... Well, I, I want to say probably around when I was in first grade. They gained their popularity overseas in Europe. For some reason, the American airwaves just weren't friendly to them and people kept overlooking them. 
Right. And of course, it's also important to note that going back to the States, the book also discusses the late Lou Pearlman. And I think what's also interesting is that the book does talk a little about Lou's court cases and his ultimate stint that put him in jail where he died. Talking about his Ponzi schemes and how he got his start with a blimp business that didn't actually exist. Right. That that was weird. But I think it is important to know the history of Lou Pearlman. But like you with Kesha, it kind of took me out of the book for just a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, there were, you know, other than Kesha, a couple of those instances here and there. And while unlike you, I did know a bit about the Swedish producers and everything simply because, you know, I went to school and studied music industry. So it's like, how do you study music industry and not know who Dr. Luke and Max Martin are, basically? But I mean, I knew who Max Martin was. Don't don't get me wrong. Right. But just knowing all of the, you know, details on how they got their start and that sort of thing and what songs they spent a lot of time on and what ones came quickly and that sort of thing. Even though it was stuff I already had a good idea about or already knew pretty well, it was still put together very well in this book, except for those few instances, like we've mentioned, where it's just like something so random that you're like, okay, what does this really have to do with anything we're talking about here? So like you mentioned, pretty much four out of five from both of us. I think one of the other things that was interesting to me was that it pretty much focused solely on the really big pop artists. It did. And it really did. If you if you consider, you know, radio play and everything, I know you aren't a huge country fan, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not country fans, but it's one of the best selling genres. I'm pretty sure country outsells most every other genre almost every single year. That does sound about right. Just because the people who are buying country music, they tend to still buy a lot of CDs. They're not oh, a ton of you millennials. Mean like my dad. <laughs> it's people like my dad, except my dad doesn't really buy CDs. He just buy stuff straight off of iTunes. Right. It's usually country stuff. Yeah. And then there's you and I who we will stream music. And if we enjoy something, we'll buy it on vinyl. But country isn't a genre that's like very huge on vinyl right now. You'll get, you know, your Casey Musgraves and some of the newer artists doing vinyl. I know Carrie Underwood did vinyl for her last album, Storyteller, and I don't know oh, how well we it did. forget Taylor Swift. When yes. she broke out into the vinyl world, like, people just ate up her records. Yeah, but I think that's because Taylor Swift was one of those very borderline country pop artists, and obviously she's way more pop now, because it's a rarity to hear Taylor Swift on country radio as of late. Just because really? I still hear a lot of her older stuff on country stations when I'm channel surfing in my car. Really? I don't hear it nearly as much. I'll hear it on like some of the more random stations that kind of just play a mix of everything. No, I've definitely heard. I know one station went from Old Dominion to a very old classic Taylor song called Mean, which was weird to hear Snap Back and then Mean, but you know, whatever. Yeah, I think at least around here, the country stations are playing a lot of the new singles, basically the top 40 of country, and then they'll have like their throwback to the 90s days and stuff like that. But I don't hear Taylor Swift nearly as much as I did before on country radio. And like you mentioned, if you do, it's a lot of her older songs from when she was first getting her start. But I don't think Red singles are really played at all Mm-mm. around here it's definitely the older stuff but you know while we're talking about this going back to the whole well music business part of it i screenshotted a few of pages of the book because i knew i was not going to have it when we recorded and there was some stuff that i didn't feel like writing down <laughs> so in today's modern age i love technology one of the pages talks about how in the old days, artists were induced to give away the publishing rights of their hits, which ended up being more than their records. Right. Which is true. I mean, the publishers tended to get more than the actual artist, and we have seen court cases over the years evolve about this. 
I mean, we also saw court cases evolve about how Lou Pearlman made himself the sixth member of the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. Yeah. And basically took a huge chunk of their profits. But he's not a publisher. He was a manager who thought he could be in a boy band. Um, Let's see, where was I? Oh, yes. So today, a top artist can insist on a full share of the publishing, even though they had nothing to do with writing the song. The writers call this practice, change a word, get a third. As Hunter S. Thompson famously wrote, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. And technically, you know, the book adds that this is how the hits have always been accounted for. Yeah. It's the negative side of the music industry that we don't really hear much about. Yeah, see, it's funny that you bring that up because the job I did have last year what I was doing was I was putting in publisher and songwriter information into the company's database so they would know who to pay and what percentage to pay them if the percentage was provided to us. So, you know, you have a lot of songs where if it's a singer-songwriter, they get 100% unless they have a 50-50 publishing deal or something like that, which is pretty common if it's just a sole songwriter. But then you would have, you know, Beyonce songs come in. And there's like eight different writers on the song and you have to go and find those eight writers, publishing companies and who they're with. And with big pop artists and even, you know, rap and R&B artists, it kind of gets out of control when you get a ton of people in a room and they all want this piece of the song and this piece of the song and everyone wants their percentages So having that job, it kind of gave me a much better idea of how crazy royalties can get, because if people can't agree on the percentages, we would have to basically kind of make note of it or not input percentages, and then the publishing companies would have to go fight over it, so Universal would have to fight Sony or whatever until they came to an agreement that added up to 100%. Because we would get songs and the percentages would be like 115% once you added them all up. And it's like, you guys can't do this. <laughs> yeah, that just sounds like a giant headache. It yes. really does. <laughs> yes. And then another part of the book that I screenshotted still ties into this. is also very interesting, especially in today's day and age. CDs apparently used to cost twice as much. than what the- I mean, I remember paying $20 for one CD back in the day. Now I'm paying $20 for one record. That comes with a CD. So, you know, anyway. Um, But CDs turned out to be really popular with record buyers. This was a trend in the 90s where fans who already owned music on vinyl replaced their records with CDs. Yeah. So in the early 90s, hit albums on CDs were selling in far greater numbers than hit albums on records. And CDs, quote, also turned out to be a brilliant way of repackaging a label's catalog all of the recordings that were no longer in production on vinyl. So it also says that CDs spawned a generation of record executives whose skill was putting together compilations of existing music rather than in discovering new artists. And basically the recession of the early 90s helped cause the rise of CDs. And then it says that the CDs, which were so treasured with record labels were the seeds of their downfall because of the digital age. Digitized songs had to be compatible with CD players and computers, but they weren't copy protected. And this is where the rise of torrenting comes in. I mean, I still have blank CDs. I do still burn CDs from time to time. And I guess it's like, it's almost a modern day piracy in a way, but I'm not actually pirating. I'm making mixed CDs. Right. So it's no different than a mixtape. Yeah. And typically a lot of times what I would do when I was burning CDs and stuff, it's like I would make CDs for myself to listen to in the car. You know, I wasn't necessarily giving those away. And I mean, so the title of this book is The Song Machine and then the subtitle or whatever you want to call it is Inside the Hit Factory. So I just want to go back briefly to what I put in my notes about maybe having a chapter called the Nashville Song Machine. And while I know, you know, Kesha, I believe, was the one who did do some writing in Nashville, I think 
everyone listening to this is probably very familiar with Nashville being known as, you know, country music. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this book maybe should have just been titled The Pop Song Machine (laughs) because I felt like that's really where the focus was on this. And we didn't even really get too much, you know, rap or R&B necessarily. There was a small section that was more R&B than anything else. Right. But if you consider the artists he solely focused on, so we had what? Oh, it was all pop. Yeah. Kesha, Kelly, Katy Perry, which I was a little disappointed. They didn't mention that Katy Perry did Warp Tour. Little disappointed in that because... Yeah, yeah, that would have been of note to include that a pop singer was able to go on to a massive... Well, I use the word punk rock sparingly, but a punk rock tour. Yeah. And, you know, she obviously did that before she really blew up and became this major pop star. And it's kind of like they just glanced over that. I think they also glanced over her career as a Christian singer as well. They mentioned it, but they didn't really go into full detail. Right. Because that's how she also had fans before she became the pop star that we all know her as today. Yeah. And I mean... That's just a minor thing, saying that, you know, maybe it should have been the pop song machine or something like that. Yeah, it was definitely pop heavy and it's good mindless fodder. (laughs) Yeah, to me, I would love to see something that covers songwriting and producing maybe on a more broad basis. You know, it would have been cool to have a section be about pop songs and You could have even tossed in probably a lot of rap songs in there because, you know, those are also songs that will have, like I mentioned, five, six, seven, eight writers on them. And to me, those two kind of go hand in hand, even though, you know, not necessarily all rap songs are radio friendly, but it's still a big part of the music scene and music culture in general, especially when it comes to songwriting and producing those big rap hits and everything and i think r&b is similar to pop but different in so many different ways if that makes any sense at all no it does but it really does i think you know that's a genre that really advanced what a lot of people could do in the pop world as well because you know he mentioned neo and i thought that was kind of a good crossover example and that could have maybe segued into a whole R&B chapter because he has that kind of voice to where he could do either or Neo basically. has it. Usher has it. There's so many. And the other thing I noticed is that this book did primarily focus more on female artists. Yes. Usually we end up talking about how things are male dominated in the industry, which is true. The music industry is still very male-dominated, and this book did highlight that. They did talk about the Backstreet Boys, and they did talk about NSYNC, but there were some other major pop bands from the 90s that were just as successful, like 98 Degrees and the British boy band Five, as well as Westlife and a few others that maybe had a sentence or two mentioned about them, but nothing more. And I think it's important to note that if they were going to talk about the success of international things, especially going back to Sweden and how everything ties back to Sweden, they could have mentioned some of the European neighbors. Like, I can't imagine listening to pop music in the 90s without a solid European influence. I mean, I don't even think Aqua was discussed much in the book. And that was a band that really had an impact. And Well, they were also Swedish. Yeah. And I mean, like I just mentioned, Neo was really the only male solo artist, I guess you could say, that he kind of talked a bit about. So it's like we had a big gap between, you know, the boy bands and then Neo with talking about male singers or male groups. And I think it is great that they wanted to focus on the female artist, but at the same time, other than Esther Dean, it seemed like men were writing all of the songs. It was. It was nothing but men. 
And I mean, if you even today look at Taylor Swift's writing camp, it's still very male dominated. She uses a lot of these producers and writers that help make the Spice Girls and Britney and Christina all popular. And going back to the whole Backstreet Boys thing, like if we had a little airplane image, it would be us just flying around the world talking about this stuff. (laughs) But I was going through these screenshots and I did see that the Backstreet Boys were also quite popular in Asia. Yeah. Of course, it also says here, uh, let's see, they started flying program directors, writers, and tastemakers up to Canada to see the shows of the Backstreet Boys. So cities that were closer to Canada, like Rochester and New York, started to play their first record, but it wasn't quite popular. And Jive tried to push the video on MTV, but eventually said, hey, we're going to ban the Backstreet Boys, so stop sending us them. Which... To think about that, that's pretty weird. Yeah. Because I can't even imagine MTV without the Backstreet Boys. But anyway, yes, in 96, they toured in Europe. And then they did an extensive Asian tour. The Japanese and South Korean fans absolutely loved this group of five white guys. And apparently, their visit helped solidify and spread the word, or like, the popularity of K-pop, which I never really got into. There were, I think, one or two chapters in the book that specifically talked about K-pop and J-pop. Right. And what's interesting is despite my half-Japanese heritage and despite my love of all things Nintendo and whatnot, I never got into those genres. I... This is why I sometimes hesitate to talk about the whole multiracial thing because people... When they hear, oh, you're half Japanese, who's your favorite K-pop artist? I look at them as if they have five heads. <laughs> and it's honestly just something that never appealed to me. I did, it, it annoyed me. It even annoyed me in DDR. And don't get me wrong, I loved DDR. I think the only person I can mention is Hitaru. Gosh, now I have to Google this. I don't want to say her name wrong. Um, but I, I can see it in my head. I really just don't want to say it. <laughs> Let's see, Hitachi. Yeah, I wouldn't know any names probably for K-pop or J-pop. I mean, because to me, it's like, it's hard for me to want to listen to music where I wouldn't understand the lyrics. And, you know, there are a lot of multilingual artists who are very popular. I mean, immediately, you know, Celine Dion comes to mind. Oh, yeah, and she's still cranking out the hits in English and French. Yeah. And if we're going with the bilingual stuff, this book also talked about how, well, the Backstreet Boys. Interesting, not in sync getting as popular as the Backstreet Boys, but the Backstreet Boys were so popular overseas that they did end up singing some of their songs in the country's native languages. Right. Like, they've got a few Spanish versions of songs. I think they did a French version as well. But I know... Back in February, when James and I worked on an I Made This For You playlist, I think I talked about the Spanish version of I'll Never Break Your Heart. I love that version. It's so good. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not as common for American artists necessarily to do songs in other languages, but we saw that... I think the only person that comes to mind is Jennifer Lopez and Mark Anthony. They've done songs in English and Spanish and Shakira. Technically, Beyonce has too. That's true. That's true. Because she has a Spanish version of Irreplaceable. And I think she did quite a few of the songs. That's right. And I mean, she's done a song with Shakira. So, (laughs) you know, it kind of goes hand in hand there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, more people just tend to sing in English. Yeah. But the thing is, like with the Backstreet Boys and Beyonce, as far as we know, they didn't already speak Spanish necessarily like Jennifer Lopez, Mark Anthony, and Shakira did because that's the household they grew up in. You know, they spoke Spanish at home. And then, you know, with J-Lo, I believe it was a case of that speaking Spanish at home and, you know, going to school and knowing English for that and everything. Mm -hmm. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is J-Lo grew up in, what, the Bronx? So, you know, she didn't have it easy. And 
it's kind of interesting to see how someone like J-Lo or Shakira, you know, it's always great to see multilingual artists be able to make it big in more than one way because they can impact the people in America who don't necessarily speak English, who might only speak Spanish, and they can have those big pop hits in English at the same time. Right. And that's also, you know, why J-pop and K-pop have been so popular, too, is they've been able to reach audiences across the world, whether or not they speak the respective language. And thanks to the power of Google, I learned that I was thinking of the right artist, but saying her name completely wrong. It's Utada Hikaru, and she goes by Utada. And I believe she's done some video game music as well. Okay. Um, I think maybe more with the... Final Fantasy? No, Kingdom Hearts. She did stuff with Kingdom Hearts. Okay. So there's that. But yeah. as you can tell, I clearly skimmed those chapters and just didn't bother reading. <laughs> yeah, I read through them, but they were probably the least interesting for me just because I'm not familiar with the music. I mean, I know it exists. I know it's a thing and I know it's very popular, but it's just never been something that's resonated with me. So to kind of bring this all together, what would you say the best part of the book was for you? Or the best thing about the book, not necessarily a single part of it? I liked this, the American Idol talk. Okay. I mean, it used to be such a popular show. And I mean, I do remember getting swept up in American Idol fever. Yeah. This was this was when I was in middle school. Maybe early late elementary school or early middle school. But I liked how it talked about the inner workings of the show itself. And how Kelly didn't really impress Simon until she started hitting some pretty high notes that <laughs> yeah. just blew the judges away. Like, I also can't imagine a world without Kelly Clarkson. She's wonderful. I love her. Yeah, and it's funny that obviously with her being the first American Idol, she's been able to have a huge impact not just in general but specifically for that show because Mm -hmm. it's like she's the prime example of what this show can do for someone and they briefly mentioned Carrie Underwood which I was a little sad about because she's such a huge artist (laughs) the same could honestly be said about Carrie yeah but you know it's interesting to think well what if Justin Gorini had won the first season of American Idol right would Kelly have been doing Dr. Pepper commercials now (laughs) I don't know but that's what he's doing right now he's doing diet Dr. Pepper commercials yeah and you could even see a decline in American Idol stars in general because you know you had Kelly the first season I believe Carrie Underwood was season three's winner And then you had artists like Daughtry come out of this, even though he didn't even win. But that season had quite a few artists who have been consistent because I know that season, I believe, had two country artists come out of it. And they both, you know, have had pretty solid careers, one being Kelly Pickler and the other being... But didn't she move on to Broadway, too? Yeah, I mean, Kelly's done quite a few things. She had... She has a unique range. Yeah, and she had a couple of albums, I believe, and then she was, you know, she was on Ellen and all the big shows and everything, Mm -hmm. and she's kind of moved away from solely focusing on having, you know, a country music career, and I think that's, you know, totally fine, because even now... On American Idol, you can play instruments. So even if someone doesn't necessarily get, you know, the grand prize and get their own recording deal and s- something like that, they could still go on and, you they know. They still make an impact. I mean, look at Fantasia. Look at, well, the washed up career of Clay Aiken, who's now <laughs> a new North Carolina politician. Right. Also, what's interesting to note is that Danny Noriega... I hope it's Danny Noriega. I think it's Noriega, but I know who you're talking about. Yes. He got his start on American Idol, and now he is a drag queen. Right. Uh, Spoiler alert for those of you who watch RuPaul's All-Stars, Drag Race All-Stars. Adore Delano did leave this week, but Danny Noriega, Noriega, I'm sorry for pronouncing it wrong. (laughs) He is also known as Adore Delano. And Adore Delano is a beloved queen in the drag industry. She takes more of a grunge approach. She's younger than a lot of the other 
drag queens out there. And she doesn't really do the glitz and glam. She does take inspiration from the grunge era, which I think is totally awesome. Right. And quickly going back to kind of how people can still come out of American Idol and, you know, have careers and everything. Tori Kelly, who is, you know, from not necessarily my area directly, but from Southern California, she now has Scooter Braun as her manager, who is mostly known for being Justin Bieber's manager. And she's been having Ariana Grande. Yeah, she's she's, also Ariana Grande's manager. Yeah, she's been having a great career. She performed at the Grammys and she's been getting, you know, awards and stuff for I believe she got an award for a new artist at something. I could be wrong on that. She might. I think she was nominated for Best New Artist Grammy this year. Right. And that sounds about right. And it's really cool to see someone from here, you know, she didn't make it very far on American Idol. She definitely didn't even hit the top 12. And she's still been able to go out there. And she was kind of one of those YouTube people. She started covering songs on YouTube. She, you know, released a EP, I believe it's called Handmade Songs by Tori Kelly. And Oh, well, speaking of YouTube, this is where the voice comes into play. I wish that the book had talked more about shows like The Voice. Right. Because The Voice picks up people from YouTube. I mean, they had Christina Grimmie on in one of the most recent seasons, and her fame grew even bigger from The Voice. They also had um, one of the girls, I want to say from Megan Dia. Somehow that sounds about right. It's one of the sister duos that was really popular in like the late, well, mid, late 2000s. Okay, yeah, and I know they had Cassidy Pope, who was the yeah. singer in Hey Monday, which was a band from our scene. And now she somehow has a country career, which I don't get. <laughs> Her voice just makes me want to take cheese graters to my ears, but you know, to each their own. There's even some Hey Monday songs that make me just want to grate my ears. You know, I never really listened to them, and I just never, you know, really got into her music then or her solo career now i mean she yeah, has no, a couple of songs i know just because you know country radio Blake plays them took her under his wing and basically turned her into a country darling it's just ugh. but anyway let, let's go back to american idol yeah there was an interesting thing in the book that i really enjoyed as a soprano singer and for those of you who don't speak music sopranos are the mariah carey's of the world they can hit the high notes that could possibly break glass and or eardrums. Thankfully, I'm not that shrill. That's <laughs> um, why I love the key change and love on top that Beyonce sings because I can actually get up really high and I love it. Anyway, no, I won't sing it for you guys. I'll spare your ears now. But in American Idol, they talk about the emotional climax that people in the record business sometimes referred to as the money note. And the song and reference that they're talking about is a moment like this. The huge emotional finale song in the first season of American Idol. Right. Which basically skyrocketed Kelly's career. But the money note is probably one of the most famous money notes is in Whitney Houston's version of I Will Always Love You, which the book does say is a Dolly Parton cover. Yes. Which is interesting to think about. We did briefly discuss this i think in the last uh misaligned episode where we talked about the music of the 90s and failed to mention that it was a dolly cover but anyway at the beginning of the third rendition of the chorus there's a pause and then a drum beat and then that i will always love you that long extended i that that's the money note right another example is in the celine dion classic my heart will go on and, you know, let's see, key change in the third verse, a note you can hear a hundred times and it still brings you up short in the supermarket and transports you from the price of milk to a world of grand romantic gesture. <laughs> the lyrics posted in this book, you're here, there's nothing I fear. And if I'm thinking of this right, the money note would be that nothing, that just high note. Right. No, I will not sing that either. <laughs> this is not karaoke time. But... The money for, the money note technically was coined during a session with Barbara Streisand. And it's when you hit high notes and it's a note that sounds expensive, not necessarily a note that'll make a lot of money. 
And Kelly nailed it in a moment like this. In that final chorus key change, she had that full cry, chill-making moment. And of course, that's also what helped her win the season. Yeah. Was that note, when you're able to pull something off that successfully, that's that's talent right there. Yeah. And I think my favorite part of the book was just how it went in depth on what it takes to make a hit song in general, because I think a lot of people who are, you know, casual listeners of music and not, you know, obsessed with all of the details necessarily like you and I might be, they don't necessarily know all of the effort and time that goes into making some of these songs or even sometimes the lack thereof of time and that it takes to make these songs. You know, some songs will be written lyrically at least in, you know, half an hour, which I think would amaze a lot of people. And I think this book did a really great job of focusing on that specifically because after all it is titled the song machine so you want to know how these hits are made and it was interesting to hear how some of the pop songs were actually pieced together excuse me literally right they were literally just pieced together beat by beat yeah whether it's getting inspiration from the weirdest things and kind of just cutting and pasting things or even taking tape it's harder to cut things on a tape than it is in today's digital world. Yeah. And in the 90s, it's actually what happened with Ace of Base was a producer took a tape and just like chopped it up into what turned into Ace of Base songs that we know and love today. Yeah. And I loved when they were talking about Esther Dean and how she just has, you know, like phrases on her phone. <laughs> and sometimes she won't even really sing lyrics. She'll just kind of like spout things out and make a melody out of it and then fill in the lyrics later yeah and if we're gonna talk about things that were also nice in this book i have to laugh in the Katy perry chapter they discuss a humble little rapper named aubrey graham right except they don't call him aubrey graham in the book they call him drake the canadian superstar rapper with an easy like sunday morning appeal (laughs) that that's just a silly little reference to drake and i grinned like an idiot reading it but it was interesting that they, um, the producers wanted him to write a rap for a bridge on one of Katy Perry's songs. Right. And, ah, this was a Dr. Luke thing. And he said, I will make sure that this is what Katy wants. And I did also like how they talked about a lot of Dr. Luke's songs suspiciously sounding similar to one another. Like You and Your Hand by Pink. Yeah. And Who Knew, also by Pink. And apparently you and your hand which has been talked about in some of the dr luke discussions sounded suspiciously like forever that was a song written for the veronicas back in 2005 pink didn't know this at the time and when someone told her she stopped working with dr luke completely and you know it is interesting to know that even a Dr. Luke Max Martin song that we all know and treasure dearly, the Avril Lavigne classic Girlfriend, also sounds suspicious. Like the power pop group The Rubenews accused the songwriters of using part of their song I Want to Be Your Boyfriend. And apparently Dr. Luke also had some issues with Butch Walker. Right. Butch Walker believed that Dr. Luke had stolen his original idea for Girlfriend, which was a gloss on Tony Basil's 80s hit, Mickey. You don't want to cross Bruce. Bruce. Oh, my gosh. Butch. (laughs) You don't want to walk across Butch Walker in the music industry. He's one of the few that can also be a successful producer and a successful musician all at the same time, too. Right. And... If you haven't heard Butch Walker's new album, you really should. It's really good. I still need to do that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to throw that out there. But yeah, it's interesting. And oh, Butch Walker described the incident, this whole girlfriend incident, in his memoir, Drinking in Bars with Strangers, which includes, quote, a thinly veiled portrait of Luke as Larry. Larry is a jackass. And... Walker wrote, I remember him asking me, so when you write songs for people, do you even bother with lyrics or melody? Or do you have someone come in to help you with that? Because I can't do anything with lyrics and melody. I need to bring in outside help. Right. So, you know, the whole pettiness of the music industry, that's fun. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, even though we both liked it, it's like there's sort of 
a tinge of negativity throughout the book, especially when you're talking about people like Dr. Luke and kind of all of these things where he's getting sued left and right for this song sounding like this song sounding like this song and that sort of thing. But I think that's part of what made this book a really good read. It's like he didn't sugarcoat the music industry at all. The music industry deserves to have its dark secrets and pitfalls exposed. I think, honestly, that's my opinion. Yeah. It's it's dark. It's not as pretty as people tend to think it is. Right. So I think that wraps up our thoughts on this book. I feel like if we said anything further, we would kind of just be going in circles and saying the same thing over and over again. So if you did not check it out. Well, wait, wait. I read the stuff that no one reads, like the afterword and the note on sources. Okay. This is actually pretty cool to note. In the A Note on Sources, John Seabrook writes, The song machine is mainly based on interviews I conducted over the course of several years, and the interviewees are listed in the acknowledgments. Right. In the text, interviews by the author are in the present tense, he says, and quotations drawn from supplementary material are in the past tense, like he said. Magazines, books, and broadcasts were used as sources that are noted in the text at the point where that particular first or source first appears, and, oh, yes, quotations in text originally in Swedish were translated by Lisa Lonstren. But, you know, all that nice technical stuff aside, he used a premium subscription to Spotify as a research tool. In fact, he says it was invaluable in making this book. John Seabrook created Spotify playlists of most of the songs referenced in the narrative, broken both into chapters and individual hit makers. So there's Max Martin songs, there's Stargate songs. The Taylor Swift songs referenced are currently unavailable, but hopefully by the time you read this, the artist in Spotify will have worked it out. Which they have not. <laughs> nope. Instead, that should mention Apple Music. If you want to listen to Taylor Swift playlists, you should probably listen to Apple Music. And that shows that just how much the music industry can change in just a few short years. There was no Apple Music at the time that this book was written, even right. up until... Well, 2014, I guess, was when it was initially published, or maybe last year, but had to... Anyway. And Spotify was still an emerging tool in the early 2010 era. It was something more popular in, well, yes, Europe. It didn't really become as popular stateside until it had Facebook integration and all that other great stuff. So if you do want to check out some of the songs referenced in the book without actually reading the book, go find John Seabrook's Spotify playlists. If I can find them, I will definitely put them in the show notes and link them for you guys. Yeah, and if you didn't follow along while we were reading the book and you are even the slightest bit interested in it, I highly recommend checking it out. It's a good look at the inner workings of the production side of the music industry and at times the business side but this definitely focuses more on the making of the songs this doesn't even really go into the marketing of the songs and distribution and all the other things you could go on and on about for a single song or record that need to be done and like i mentioned earlier in the episode we do have a new book pick and we are going to do this our next regular episode. So in two weeks, that should be more than enough time for everyone to read it. I mean, if I can read it in that time period, and I was way behind on the song machine, obviously, then I think you guys can handle it. But Megan, do you want to let everyone know what won our Twitter poll for the book? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we had a Twitter poll. I pulled out three completely random 33 and a thirds, put them on the Twitter poll. Did you know that there's a Celine Dion 33 and a third? That really was interesting, but it was between, the final tally was literally between Fleetwood, Mask, Fleetwood Mac's Tusk and Neutral Milk Hotels in the Aeroplane Over the Sea, in the Aeroplane Over the Sea 1. And that 33 and a third is written by Kim Cooper. So that's our next book. It's going to be awesome. Yes, and we should note that I have never listened to this album in my life, so I will be doing that. Still don't know how you've never listened to this album in your life, but you know. Because I've never listened to the band, so therefore I could not have listened to the album. Ugh, I'm just going to shake my head at you. All right, well, we're going to give some quick recommendations this week. Again, we have all music recommendations. I think this is maybe a first that this has happened two episodes in a row here. 
I think we're actually on three. We maybe. are. No, no, I had the Olympics. And I'm <laughs> All right, Megan, why don't you give us your recommendation for the week? All right. Kevin Devine is coming out with a new album called Instigator. The single streaming off of that is called No History. I pre-ordered the album. I'm excited to get it. And No History is a really awesome song. It also talks a little bit about 9-11. So we're coming up on the 15th anniversary of that. So that's that's an interesting listen. Yeah. And while Megan has an upcoming release, I do as well. I have two of them, actually. But you won't have to wait nearly as long because they will be out the day after you guys get this episode in your podcast app of choice. I'm recommending The Pooches self-titled album and Hiding Places self-titled EP. So you only really need to remember four words there. The Pooches, Hiding Place. Check those out. The Pooches, I've probably recommended them. I don't recall if I did, but they have a very like almost Beach Boys melody kind of vibe to their music. And it's really just a fun, chill listen. And Hiding Place is a little bit different, but if you're into, you know, pop punk, rock, whatever, emo, if you want to call it that, I know people have all different definitions of what is emo music and what isn't and what bands are emo and what bands aren't, but definitely check out Hiding Place. It's an EP, so it's a quick listen. And I think these are two releases definitely to check out this week before we start getting our plethora of fall releases coming in. You know, we have Taking Back Sunday coming up, Yellow Card, Green Day, Sum 41. It's like early 2000s all over again, apparently, which I'm yep. I'm I'm pretty pretty much fine with, you know, getting records from all of those bands. But that's all we have for you guys this week. Again, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea by Kim Cooper will be our next book. And hopefully we will be back on a monthly track <laughs> after this one. I will do my best to not not finish books anymore. So check that out. And as always, thank you guys for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.